to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 127, and it's a continuation of our story of the Havana Conference of 1946. In the previous episode, episode 126, we set the plate and the stage for the actual happenings at the Havana Conference itself. In that episode, we tell that part of the story that includes much of the historical lead-up. That context and background is essential to understanding the meeting itself. In today's episode 127, we'll finish setting the plate, and then we'll get right into the meeting itself. The story continues to be a fascinating one, and I hope you think so too. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 127 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. would be one of those people who was absent from the going-away party that was thrown for Luciano aboard the SS Laura Keene. As I've said earlier, Lansky didn't like being spotted in public, and he didn't like his picture being in the paper, and he didn't like being talked about or written about in the context of things related to the mob. Unlike his many mafia counterparts, he was a man who shunned the limelight. Even having said that, he wasn't going to let Lucky Luciano leave for Italy without saying goodbye. And so a few days before the ship sailed, he would get together with Luciano on Ellis Island. That was the place where they were holding Luciano before they released him for his voyage across the water and back to Italy. Lansky would say his goodbyes, deliver a few personal items and a bit of cash, and then he would whisper but one word to Lucky one that must have been a dulcet delight for him at that moment. And that one word was Cuba. It was meant to soothe the disappointment and the grudge that Luciano now felt after helping the United States in the war effort to defeat the Nazis. 
it was hard for him to fathom that this war contribution was not enough to let him stay on U.S. soil. Regardless, that was the past, and it was time to take charge of the present and the future, and Cuba would have to be the next important step. There are some who say that maybe the whole harebrained scheme would have worked in Cuba had they just not been so greedy. Indeed, some of the bountiful profits that came about from the Mafia's massive casino projects during those glorious years between 1952 and 1958 were indeed reinvested in infrastructure on the island. Taken in a vacuum, that part of the Faustian bargain was a good thing. But it was too little to offset the picture of greed that began to form the moment the Mafia landed in Cuba. Sadly, the very engine that could have saved the Cuban people, the golden goose bestowed upon the island by the Mafia, was hung over the populace like food in a prison cafeteria. But the goose was just in the middle of being born in 1946. So let's not get too ahead of ourselves yet. Let's rewind the tape just a little. Sometime in the 1930s, Meyer Lansky, in anticipation of what might go on in Cuba, would form a new entity named the Cuba National Corporation. This entity would house his partial ownership of the Hotel Nacional in Havana. Later, Cuba Nacional would merge with the National Cuba Hotel Corporation, and the combined company would eventually become part of the Hilton Hotel chain. The new combined company would have offices on Flagler Street in downtown Miami. That's a street I know well from my earlier days in South Florida. The relationship with Hilton would pave the way for later hotel development on the island. The period 1934 to 1940 would be a gestation period for the Mafia when it came to Cuba. Just a couple of hundred miles north in Broward County, Florida, where I grew up, Meyer Lansky, along with his brother Jake, were running their own gambling operations, and in the process, they were becoming quite good at it. And they were establishing a large stable of highly trained and English-speaking casino employees, a stable of employees that would later be critical to Lansky's work in Cuba. While things seemed to be on hold in Cuba, Lansky's earlier investment in Bautista was beginning to come to fruition. By about 1937, Batista's control over the military was firmly in place, and his grip on Cuban politics was ever-tightening. It was about this time that the Oriental Park racetrack in Havana, a grand destination for racing, had fallen into disrepair during the Depression. As a result of this circumstance, Bautista indirectly engineered Lansky's involvement to come to Cuba and rehabilitate the two casinos that were on the racetrack's premises. It was not yet the grand plan that Lansky aspired to for involvement in Cuba, but at least it was a foot in the door in the operation of casinos on the island. Some of his treasured staff from the onshore operations would be moved to Havana beginning in about 1938, and that helped Meyer immensely over the next couple of years to establish a beachhead of credibility in the business and gambling community in Cuba. Things related to Senor Bautista were moving along nicely on a parallel track. Just before the outbreak of World War II, in 1940, Bautista would finally leave the ranks of the military and formally become Cuba's president. In the campaign that led up to the election, 
Batista would propose an incredibly ambitious social reform agenda entitled The Three-Year Plan. It was a bit of a wild hair, for sure. Some of his detractors referred to it as the 300-year plan. It was so ridiculous. Years later, people would read the Fidel Castro plan and set it side by side with Bautista's 1939 plan, and there was much in common between the two. The problem for Bautista was not much of that plan ever got implemented. One thing that did happen, though, was the reestablishment of a new sovereign constitution with expanded elements of equality in a burgeoning democratic society. Regardless of what you think about Bautista, the actual advancements in that 1940 constitution were real. And some of the highlights were very real. Women received the right to vote. Military power was subjugated under the power of the government of the people. And there were other reforms, too. And Cuba had already abandoned its adherence to the provisions of the Platt Amendment, with Bautista having been widely received and supported by the Roosevelt administration. The U.S. government in those years was finally willing to replace, as a practical matter anyway, that is, the enforcement of the harsh requirements of the Platt Amendment. And they replaced it with something known as the good neighbor policy toward Cuba. What that meant more simply was that Cuba was on its way to having more internal independence as long as it could manage the internal strife and limit the impact on American investment and American interests. Batista would serve four years as the country's president and then claim as his greatest achievement the installation of a democratic constitution. Quite a public relations coup for a man who had become an expert at suppressing rebellion in the most brutal of ways. If you were Bautista, you might have seen it as the role of a benevolent dictator and a necessary evil in the land of emerging republics. In reality, the reforms that he resided over did diminish the power of the military, but it's still an historical question mark as to whether the country was entirely ready for that to happen at that very moment. You see, the seeds of chaos were still brewing, and the economic and social issues that breed chaos were still present, at least across the island, if not so much in Havana. It was, unfortunately, still a tale of two cities, so to speak. The land of Havana and the land of everywhere else in Cuba. These stark social differences would be the underlying platform that finally ignited things a decade later. But wait, we're not quite there yet in time. That is, the start of the mafia domination of the island. And so, as the story takes a few twists and turns before we get there, let's tell that part first. To begin with, something was happening to Batista, but it was more personal than professional. Like George Washington, who helped to establish our first government as a new republic here in the U.S., and then relinquish power, in a stunning display of the new democratic model of government, Bautista would also leave the presidency after serving one term and establishing the new constitution. <laughs> but it wasn't altruistic on Bautista's part. And let's face it, this man was not a George Washington. He would retire to Daytona Beach, Florida. On the surface, this seems like an odd thing for a man at the top of his game who was 
firmly in control of Cuba on the one hand, while declaring its emergence as a democratic nation on the other. And why Daytona? I'm not so sure. But in reality, though, it was about his marriage and marital status. Batista was married, but he was in a passionate relationship with another woman, and his attention turned inward. He had grown tired of the woman that he now called his wife. But one thing is for sure about Bautista. He never grew tired of relationships, and over his lifetime, he would father nine children. This new love was a young lady that his motorcade almost ran over one day, but they didn't, and the rest is history. By around the time that World War II ended, he would be out of Cuba and enjoying the leisurely Florida life that he desired at that moment. Yes, he was enjoying his mistress, who was 20 years old then, less than half his age. He was 44, and yet he was still influencing, indeed controlling matters in Cuba from afar. And he was accomplishing this even though his surrogate candidate in the subsequent election lost to Ramon Grau San Martin. Oh, but I digress. I guess we have to get back to the story of the conference. Well, you see, it wouldn't be long until the Mafia would meet at the hotel in December 1946 and make history in their famed Havana Conference. At that conference, they would resurrect the grand plan for Cuba, and that would mean that Meyer Lansky would then come knocking again at Bautista's door, reminding Bautista of the debt that was already paid in advance many years before and owed to Lansky and for which the quid pro quo was now coming due. They would soon need Bautista back in Cuba and back in charge of things for the benefit of the syndicate. Bautista was living the high life in the States, shuffling back and forth from Daytona to New York, and while in New York, he was making his residence at the Waldorf Astoria. He would take some time to tidy up his affairs, divorcing the old wife and marrying the new 20-year-old Belle Maria, and in between, he would enjoy some golf, tennis, and fishing in Florida. He was a member of the Daytona Beach Bath and Tennis Club, and to keep his hand in the thick of things back in Cuba, he would occasionally make his way to a nearby Florida city that sometimes was Palm Beach, sometimes Orlando, and sometimes just little old Fort Pierce. But in these locations, he would rendezvous with Cubans who would then carry his orders and instructions back inside of Cuba as he continued his puppet master ways with the island. But it would not be long until this leisurely life was again behind him. We'll get back to Bautista in a moment, but for now, let's turn to the main event of the day, the Havana Conference itself, and the arrival of the main guests. It was not long after Luciano received that three-word note from Lansky that he began planning his exit from Italy. Perhaps it was less than an exit from the homeland than it was a journey back to the promised land. He knew he was being watched, and so there was no way that he could go straight back across the ocean, directly to Cuba. The path would have to be circuitous in nature. He'd only been in Italy for about seven months. He kept the trip back across the water a secret. And his voyage from start to finish would take nearly two weeks. He would board a freighter, and it would first go to Caracas, Venezuela in mid-October. And from there, he would fly to Rio de Janeiro. He would stay in each port of call for a few days. Part of the momentary pause at each point in the trip 
was to ensure that he was not under surveillance by the authorities. Next, he would fly to Mexico City, and then from there, back to Caracas. Finally, in Caracas, he would take a chartered private plane for the last part of the trip back to Cuba. I don't know about you, but I got kind of exhausted just listening to the itinerary when I was researching his trip. So I can't even imagine what it might have been like for an agent of one of those governmental entities that was trying to follow him. The bottom line is that at the end of the day, he made his way back into Cuba without anyone stepping in his way, along the way. He was also smart enough not to book the flight directly into Havana. He actually flew into Camagüey, which is an area of Cuba well within the interior and a ways away from Havana. When he reached the airport, Lansky was there to greet him. They would drive together back to Havana, but first they would have a pleasant stop for lunch at the nearby Grand Hotel in Camagüey before they got on their way. A few hours later, they would be in Havana and Luciana would be dropped off at the Hotel Nacional, but Lansky would not be staying. He had let Luciano know that he was on his way back to the United States to discreetly let the syndicate members know that the meeting was on in Havana. Yes, indeed, the Havana conference was on, and it was the first major meeting in 14 years of the major regional mafia bosses from throughout the United States, the members of the National Syndicate. As Lansky embarked on the next leg of his own trip, Luciano would spend the next two weeks at the luxurious Hotel Nacional, and in mid-November, he moved into an even more luxurious house in a nearby suburb of Havana. It was a beautiful place inside an area known as Miramar, a place where the wealthiest of Cubans and Americans stayed or had a home when they came to Cuba. Where he was staying was only a few streets away from the residence of Cuba's current president, Ramon Grau San Martin. Over the next several weeks, Luciano would get settled in and he would enjoy some of the pleasures of the flesh that he had been deprived of after 10 years in prison. Beautiful women would make their way to the Hotel Nacional, and powerful men would dine with him as he remade the landscape with his presence. He was preparing for one of the most important meetings of his life, and his ability to make his way back into the U.S. might be in the balance as well. The importance of this meeting to Luciano himself could not be understated. He was not only trying to get back to the United States, but he was attempting to reaffirm himself as the present de facto head of the syndicate and to reassert himself as the future leader too. There was a lot at stake for him. We have to appreciate that, at the time, not much was known about how Luciano was able to secure his own release from prison. Clearly, it was related to his overall relationship with the U.S. government. And at this point, Luciano, for purposes of the meeting, would play it as an advantage, at least to the outsiders in Cuba. Even though the syndicate already knew the whole story, the fact that he was able to walk free from a 50-year sentence, somehow that put him in the eyes of many as being above the law. As the time for the meeting drew near, Vito Genovese would be the first of the mobsters to arrive in Cuba for the meeting. He would be days early, and he would have an agenda. 
he would tell Luciano that he was there early for the sun. But lucky Luciano knew better. Genovese would stay at the Hotel Nacional, where all the invited guests would stay, but soon he would make his way out for a meeting with Luciano, in what would be an early break of the house rules for the conference. You see, there was an agreement that there would be no side meetings, no side conversations, and no side deals made. It was open game to discuss anything when they were together at the conference, but otherwise, not so. Right around the 20th of December, Vito Genovese would call Luciano at his house, and then Luciano would invite him out, playing out the circumstance and knowing that Genovese had something important to talk about. These two men did not like each other, and Genovese was ambitious, and especially so, in Luciano's physical absence. When the two men met, Genovese got right to the point. He asked Luciano to retire from being head of the family. Step aside and let Genovese run things. Genovese would see that Luciano was well taken care of financially. Luciano could live the life of leisure. Well, according to the story, Luciano was incensed, and he reminded Genovese that he was still in charge of the family and that there was no boss of bosses and that he had turned the role down once before, but that he would not himself relinquish his own position within his own family. He sent Genovese on his way, but that would start a fire at the start of the conference, a fire that would erupt again before everyone in the syndicate left the island. There were about two dozen men arriving for the meeting, and the top item on the agenda was what to do with Cuba. There were other important matters as well. There was a need to reaffirm Lucky Luciano as the de facto leader, and there was this harrowing issue related to the syndicate involvement in narcotics and whether the future was better or worse with or without the narcotics trade. This was tricky because some of the syndicate members were already largely into the narcotics business, and others derived their principal cash flows from the casinos and other more legitimate approaches, or at least less objectionable approaches as far as the public and law enforcement was concerned. The verdict was split, but it was clearly more in favor of staying in the narcotics trade. And finally, there was the matter related to Bugsy Siegel. Bugsy was the syndicate representative in Vegas who was in charge of the construction of one of the largest hotel construction undertakings up to that time by the Mafia, the building of the Flamingo Hotel. Siegel was a lifelong friend of Lansky, and things were not going well. The project itself was well over budget. The original budget was about a million dollars, but the current estimates for completion were now set at six million. And worse yet, there was evidence that Siegel was skimming off the top, stealing from his syndicate partners, and that was adding to the cost of overruns on the project. It was an unacceptable behavior to the men who took the idea of honor amongst thieves in a very literal way. The conference almost did not get off the ground as there was a hotel worker strike that happened that December in Havana, and it almost shut the Hotel Nacional down. But it did happen. And from December 22nd through December 26th, the top two floors of the Hotel Nacional were closed to the public. There was heavy security around the building that was provided by a private security force, and essentially the hotel shut its doors 
to everyone who was not directly related to the American mobsters who were there on the top two floors. Nobody could go in, and nobody could go out. And there were very specific prohibitions on journalists, police, government bureaucrats, and members of the Cuban government. As the syndicate members began to arrive in Havana in droves, they did what mobsters do, or at least did in those days. They would gather up and pay a tribute to Luciano. This was said to have been an idea of Lansky's. But it's the stuff that you see in old scenes from a Godfather movie, where men come and pay their respects. They bow and they shake the hand, the hand of the dawn, perhaps kiss it in a show of respect. And then they hand over an envelope of money. Well, once they were all gathered, they would go at least in one of the early nights to visit Luciano at the mansion in Miramar. And as part of that, they would pay their tribute. It was said to have totaled about $150,000 in cash that went to Luciano. On the first night, there was a gathering in one of the banquet rooms on one of the lower levels of the hotel. It was a feast of local seafood and delicacies that was fit for a king. And of course, there was the best of Caribbean rum and Cuban Monte Cristo cigars to top it off. Lansky and company had a fleet of 50 cars with chauffeurs that were ready to take these important men to the city's main nightclubs, including the Tropicana, the Montmartre, and the San Susi, where there had been a prepayment of sorts made in order to keep the event private. And, of course, as part of the whole affair, there were dancers and showgirls and prostitutes, too, from Casa Marina, the classiest and most renowned bordello in the city. In the end, there were all kinds of parties held on the Hotel Nacional's upper floors. All in all, it was an incredibly raucous event that would prepare them for the business that would then happen over the next three days of formal meetings that were going to take place on the top floor of the Hotel Nacional. Of course, Lucky Luciano would lead the affair, but it was Meyer Lansky who, on the first day, would present his idea to turn the entire Caribbean into the center of the greatest gambling operation that the world has ever seen. It would buy land on the Isle of Pines near the western province of Pinar del Rio. The Isle of Pines was presently serving as a penal colony. They would turn the island into something like a Monte Carlo with private hotel casinos and a private airport. It would be a scheme that was bigger than Vegas, bigger than anything that the syndicate had ever tackled before. Lansky would lay out the plan in detail, and he would also articulate all the work that he had carefully cultivated in the decade before, the work that made it possible for this plan to become a reality. In the end, the entire syndicate simply said yes to it. The group would turn their attention to the discussion about narcotics, and this one was not so clear-cut. Luciano was not as keen on the idea of Cuba being a base for these operations, even though he had heretofore been a large participant himself in the narco-trafficking trade. The profits from heroin, cocaine, and marijuana had the potential to be the biggest moneymaker since the bootlegging days of booze. But for him, personally, Luciano knew the downside was big. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics was headed up by a man named Harry Anslinger, and the Bureau was aiming to get Luciano. And the deeper they got into narcotics, 
the more likely he was to be a bigger target. The problem Luciano had with this argument was that much of the rest of the syndicate was making a good deal of its own profits now on narcotics trafficking, and they were too far down the road to turn back. All Luciano could do at this point was to urge the group to keep him personally out of it, at least when it came to narcotics. Finally, they would turn their attention to the issue of Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. This was a difficult discussion because Ben Siegel, Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, and Frank Costello were four men that had come together very early in life and had formed a lifelong criminal partnership. Indeed, one of the most important partnerships of all time in the annals of criminal history. Between the four of them, they were largely responsible for developing the bootleg booze industry during the Prohibition years. Here was the problem. As I said earlier, Siegel had been put in charge of building the Flamingo Hotel in Vegas, and the original budget was about $1 million. But it quickly ballooned to an estimated total of $6 million to complete the hotel construction, and it was still, as of yet, unfinished. All of the syndicate investors felt that he had become a man who was out of control, and much of it was attributable to the fact that he had a mistress named Virginia Hill, who they were all deeply suspicious of, and that perhaps was taking advantage of him because he was so smitten with her. Some of them at the conference had information that Miss Hill may have been traveling to Europe and depositing sizable funds in a Swiss bank account, and that fact didn't bode well given what was going on with the construction cost overruns occurring at the Flamingo. And there was even more to the story. There were some attendees at the Havana conference that knew Virginia really well. That included Joe Adonis and the Fischetti brothers from Chicago. There were others as well. Based on the stories they told, she had had relationships already with many of them, and they had gotten a taste of her ways firsthand, and a taste of her charms and deception. The bottom line was that they figured that she had placed the old spell on Siegel, and together they were conspiring to steal money out of the Flamingo Project for their own personal gain. Later, in Lucky Luciano's last testament, he would tell the story like this. There was no doubt in Meyer's mind that Bugsy had skimmed the dough from his building budget and that he was sure that Siegel was preparing to skip as well as skim in case the roof was going to fall in on him. Everybody listened very carefully while Meyer explained it. When he got through, somebody asked, what do you think we ought to do, Meyer? And then Lansky said, there is only one thing you do with a thief who steals from his friends. Benny's got to be hit. So it was put to a vote, and the result was unanimous, and Bugsy was as good as dead. Later, and to his very end, Meyer Lansky was adamant that it was not he who gave the order to have Ben Siegel murdered. Apparently, in his version of the story, he was the one trying to save Siegel's life. He would later tell a story that he would get permission to go see Siegel and try to mend things and make amends and work to get another opportunity for him to fix things. But after the visit with Siegel, it was clear to Lansky that such an option was not a viable possibility. Six months later, 
On June 20, 1947, Ben Siegel died from gunshot wounds he received while sitting on the sofa in the living room of Virginia Hills, Beverly Hills home. They shot his left eyeball out of his socket. The eyeball was later found intact, just a few feet away from his body. To this day, nobody knows who performed the hit, but they're quite sure that the decision for him to die was made at the Havana Conference that fateful day in 1946. Most of the attendees at the conference came under a general cover that was created by the presence of Frank Sinatra. They were all ostensibly on their way to Cuba to see a show that was performed by Frank. He would make his way to Cuba after the conference, and many, if not most, of the attendees would stick around to see it. Sinatra had a sort of idolatry for the mafia. You see, he had grown up in New Jersey, and early on he had what turned out to be a fortuitous event in his own life with one of the mafia's own, a guy named Willie Moretti. Moretti himself was an attendee at the Havana Conference. Moretti was part of the New Jersey mob and first met Sinatra when he was performing in local roadhouses and clubs. You may have already heard this story, but in 1939, the band leader, Tommy Dorsey, signed Sinatra up and put him under contract for what must have seemed at the time like a lot of money to Sinatra. It was $125 a week. Well, what happened after that was that Frank Sinatra's career just took off. And unfortunately for the kid from Hoboken, he had signed a terribly bad and terribly ironclad contract to work for a very long time for Peanuts under Tommy Dorsey. And as things progressed and it was clear that this was a ridiculous contract given Sinatra's burgeoning popularity, a dilemma developed on what to do. Dorsey was not letting him out of the contract. And then one day, the Dorsey who was not so inclined previously to make a change suddenly let Sinatra out of the deal. Now, there's a lot of folklore around what happened, but people say that Willie Moretti visited Tommy Dorsey's dressing room and stuck a gun into his mouth and demanded that the band leader reconsider the terms of the Sinatra contract. Well, whatever occurred, it worked. And Sinatra attributed his newfound free agent status to the wise guys. The rest is a bit of history. Sinatra landed in Havana, and he was accompanied by Rocco and Charles Fischetti. They were both friends of his, and they were also mafia attendees at the Havana Conference. Sinatra himself was carrying a suitcase that had $2 million in it. It was said that he delivered the cash to Luciano. Sinatra was acting as a carrier for the mafia, as he sometimes did over his lifetime, and he was providing Luciano with his current share of the current cut. The story of Sinatra's intense relationship with the Mafia is beyond the scope of this episode, but it's fascinating, and it has its own place in the JFK assassination story. We'll try to get to that in another episode. Sinatra really liked Luciano, as apparently both Sinatra's Italian ancestors and Luciano's ancestors were all from the same village back in Sicily, a place called Lercera Fridi. Little did these two gentlemen know that they were both being followed by the U.S. Narcotics Bureau all over Cuba. And buried deep 
in the Bureau's files was a report indicating that Sinatra and Luciano, at some point during Sinatra's stay on the island, took part in an orgy together. The orgy took place at the Hotel Nacional, and it caused quite a stir. An informant later told the FBI that a plane load of call girls had been sent to Havana courtesy of the Fischetti brothers and that they were supplied for a party at the hotel that was attended by Sinatra. There were other crazy stories, too. It was said that a contingent of Cuban Girl Scouts were escorted by a Catholic nun and they made their way inside of Sinatra's suite. I will spare you the details, but they ended up somehow maneuvering past all the security in their quest to provide an award to Sinatra. But when they got to the room, it was pretty apparent that at least the equivalent of a spectacular party had gone on, and there were clothing items strewn everywhere around the room. And Sinatra himself appeared in a robe. Naked women would somehow come into the picture as well before the nun had the good sense to turn around and hightail it out with the Girl Scouts in tow. And as I said, I'll spare you the rest of the details, but much of these tidbits around the debauchery would eventually get into the hands of a columnist named Robert Rourke. And he filed a story in Dateline Havana, which appeared in numerous American newspapers. He left out some of the gory details of the debauchery, but the most important point about it was that he revealed the fact that Sinatra was palling around with Lucky Luciano. The obvious question here was, what in the heck was Lucky Luciano doing in Cuba when he was supposed to be exiled in Italy? The American authorities were immediately put on notice that this man who was supposedly exiled halfway around the world was within 90 miles of the coast of the United States. Of course, Sinatra denied everything in the article, as explosive as it was. But the U.S. government was not going to sit idly by as Luciano violated the terms of his release from prison. The reality is that the U.S. Bureau of Narcotics was well aware that Luciano was in Cuba, and the original thinking was not to take action, but rather to follow him and gain more reconnaissance on the larger set of illegal activities that he inevitably was going to engage in. But the breaking of the newspaper article changed everything. <laughs> the action didn't stop there. On either December 27th or December 28th, there was, after the conclusion of the conference, an attempt on Luciano's life inside the Grand Casino Nacional. And in another incident, shortly thereafter, Luciano was approached by the National Police in the middle of one of the casinos, and while he was in the presence of a number of Cuban dignitaries. Those Cubans in higher authority would take the cops aside and make a payoff, and the arrest would turn into just a warning, but with a carefully worded message from the police stating that the killers from the night before were still out there, and they might try again. From then on, while he was still on the island, Luciano would be assigned several bodyguards who ate and slept with him. The cumulative effect of all of these events was that Luciano's presence in Cuba was now well known, and the U.S. State Department began to take action. They formally requested that the Cuban government deport Luciano back to Italy. At first, the Cuban government said no, and discussions with the Cuban president were held at the highest of levels, 
as he sought counsel from his prime minister and others. Initially, the Cuban government concluded that Luciano was in Cuba on a legitimate Italian passport and that his visa was in order and that he had done nothing illegal in Havana and there was no legislative requirement to expel Luciano as long as he continued to behave in a lawful manner. Of course, it didn't hurt that Luciano and Lansky had been spreading bribes all over the island prior to the incident. But the U.S. government wasn't done with the matter. The Narcotics Bureau Commissioner Anslinger went to U.S. President Harry S. Truman and he laid out the case surrounding Luciano's criminal history and he asked Truman to step into the circumstance and force Cuba to deport Luciano. And to make sure that this request was known, Anslinger leaked it publicly and it appeared in the New York Times and other publications. As we all know, Truman was not one to mess around when he made a decision on things. And in this case, he took a rather unusual action. He authorized the U.S. State and Treasury Departments to cut off all supplies of legitimate medical drugs to Cuba until the American mob boss was sent packing. This was such a big story that it made headline news, and the U.S. government would slant the news very heavily implying that his presence in Cuba during that time frame was directly related to a recent increase in the heroin smuggling that was then finding its way onto the shores of America. Whether that was true or not at that moment was irrelevant because it was enough pressure on the Cuban government to force them to act. On February 23rd, a Saturday afternoon, Luciano was having lunch at a restaurant in the Vedado neighborhood of Havana when six police officers arrived and placed him under arrest. Police Chief Benito Herrera, who was known to be in the pocket of Luciano and Lansky, was nowhere to be seen. Luciano would later say that Herrera didn't have the heart to do this to him personally. Luciano was given a few days to settle his affairs and then he was incarcerated in a Cuban immigration camp until his ultimate fate was decided. It was a camp that was the Cuban version of Ellis Island. If all of that wasn't enough, there was one more highlight when it came to his dalliances with the women. Luciano had struck up a romance with Beverly Paterno, who was a New York socialite. She had gotten so smitten with the relationship that she hired a publicist to help her plant gossip items in the Havana Post, which was the city's English-language daily newspaper. All of this, combined with all of the now publicly known fraternizing that he was doing with Frank Sinatra, well, all of this virtually sealed his fate. In the end, the Cuban government had to capitulate. Luciano was deported. On March 29th, he would make his way onto a rusty Turkish freighter named the SS Bakir. It would be the last moment of his life that he would spend in Cuba, and the closest he would ever get to being back in the United States. For Meyer Lansky, the dream that he had for Cuba, well, maybe in some ways it was for the better. That is, that Charles Lucky Luciano was heading back to Italy. There were some that would say that after he led the way at the conference to invest in Cuba, Lansky got what he really wanted, which was the blessing and the financial backing of the mafia to move forward. 
And now he could do it without Luciano's on-the-ground involvement. And there is no doubt that with Luciano no longer on the ground, Meyer was the top man in Cuba. And it would not be long until the dream of a mob fiefdom in Cuba would come true. Much of the storytelling in the last several episodes was derived from two absolutely fabulous books. There is too much of the story to tell on these episodes, but they are absolutely required reading for anyone serious on the topic. The first book is entitled Havana Nocturne, and it is a New York Times bestseller written by T.J. English, and the story in it is riveting. In addition, I would recommend Cuba, in American History, a book by Ada Ferrer and the winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Both of these fine books are two of the absolute best references on the story that is Cuba. Thank you for listening to episode 127 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. <laughs> 